This episode of No Quarter is sponsored by the Underground Retrocade. You love these games, and the way you want to play them is on the original cabinets. You want to see the side art, you want to feel the controls, and you want to hear the jam on the stereo. That's why I know the next time you're in the Chicago area, you'll be going underground. Underground Retrocade, that is, 121 West Main Street, West Dundee, Illinois. I'm Mike McGinnis. And I'm Carrington Vanston. And this is No Quarter, the classic video arcade game podcast thing that you all are listening to right now. I love that show. I don't think the title's long enough, though. I think we need to... <laughs> didn't, wasn't one of our original titles like three or four times as long as that? I had suggested that we call the show Dr. Strange Button, or How I Stopped Worrying and Love the Arcade Game, or something like that. You vetoed it, and we came up with No Quarter instead. I think I'm kind of regretting that choice. Dr. Strange Button would have been a great name for a podcast. I, I do like that. Yeah, I, I think that maybe in the future we should switch to that. No, I'm just going to come up with another podcast with a better co-host. And we'll oh. have a called Dr. Strange Button. And a what jerk. we're going to do is that'll be the arcade podcast podcast where we review this show. So I record with you <laughs> and then I go online with somebody else and I make fun of you for half an hour. Oh. It's the one-two punch of awesome. It's going to be very popular. Right through the heart. Well, <laughs> it's not like you don't do it anyway. You're just going to record yourself doing it. <laughs> the difference will be I will now be publishing it and getting a sponsor. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's all the more fun if I can be paid to make fun of you. <laughs> That's the sort of dynamic we have going here. <laughs> so, Mike, what is new? Um, I think we got feedback. We did get some feedback, and we got to to play a really good game this week. And I'm we just did, yeah. everything. Everything is delightful in No Quarter Land. Um, feedback wise, see, I'm, I'm I'm sort of stalling here because I'm loading up. Here we go. I've got my email. Okay, so we got email from Ron. Fireison. I think that's how you pronounce it. Sorry if I chewed up your name there, Ron. He wrote, Hi, Mike and Carrington. You talked about a Pac-Man tombstone on episode 76, and I want to right. find out yeah. more info on Michael Luther. I found this info, copied below, uh, and I thought you might want to share this with your audience. And I remember that. As soon as he wrote the email, I'm like, yeah, there was that big Pac-Man, like it looked like a real arcade game, but it was somebody's tombstone. Do you remember that? I do. Yeah, that uh, was sort of an interesting, if maybe a bit gaudy for a, a, a graveyard tombstone. Well, now I like it all the more because of, of what Ron wrote into it. Yeah, because he found story. this thing on um, genealogy.com. Genealogy, I also thought always should be spelled with like O-L-O-G-Y instead of A-L-O-G-Y. And maybe, so I, maybe a J instead of a G. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> DJ. Um, anyway, there was a, he found it for Michael Luther. And so I learned all about him. I learned all about the guy who is under that tombstone. So I, he was in the United States Air Force for a while and then in the Air Force Reserves. He worked at uh, General Motors for 30 years. And he had the nickname Junkman, which he got from his son because he'd come home with broken, broken bicycles and mowers and vacuum cleaners and so forth and that he'd get working again. And that led him into a side business where for many years he bought and repaired arcade games that he then placed in local businesses to operate. So that was sort of his side job. And Pac-Man Pac was always his favorite game, which is, you know, no surprise given the tombstone. Um, 
Oh, and speaking of which, the Pac-Man tombstone itself was designed by his sister, Lisa, which reflected, uh, you know, how much the game meant to him and all that. So it really, you know, I went back and looked at the tombstone again, and I had been sort of joking about it when we first talked about it. But now that he's become more of a real guy for me, I'm like, I kind of regret making fun of his tombstone, and I kind of think it's cool. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm a big softie that way. Cool. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Ron says, thanks for the great podcast. And I say, thanks for the great email, because I really enjoyed reading about that. And we'll have a link to the whole geneal genealogy thing with an A-L-O-G-Y <laughs> in the show notes. And Ron is from, if, from his email, I can tell he's from Illinois. So hopefully he has dropped by our sponsor's Retrocade as well. Speaking of our sponsor's Retrocade, the mm -hmm. underground Retrocade in Chicago, go visit there. Plug, 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 plug. <laughs> Um, we got a, a, an email or I guess a Facebook message from, from our sponsor, Scott Lambert, who, uh, mentioned Gal's Panic. And I thought he was guessing it at this week's game and I corrected him and I said, no, that's, that's not what it is unless Carrington got the sample wrong, which you are known to do sometimes. <laughs> um, and he, he says, no, I, I wasn't trying to guess at that next week's game so much as make fun of the, of this week's, uh, kicks derivation. Gal's Panic is kicks, but you uncover a stripper. And that's, that's true. We didn't even talk about that. I had mentioned Gal's Panic, I think, in passing in the show, if I remember. I had thrown out something about it. Because um, it's like Dirty Kicks, is what I think of it. A game that I never played when it was an arcade because it seemed like, well, that's, that's a dirty game. <laughs> like, also, that tells you a lot about what young Carrington was like and, frankly, what old Carrington is like. So, yeah, I, I had a few people write me directly as well, mentioning Gal's Panic. And I started wondering, why is everybody mentioning Gal's Panic? What is, why is that suddenly the zeitgeist of video games? But I guess it was because of something that got mentioned in last week's show. I don't know. I don't listen to our podcast. Next week on No Quarter, Gemma. <laughs> Next week on No Quarter, more of Carrington's misplaced anger. <laughs> That's right. Um, you know, oh, okay. So we got Gal's Panic feedback, which was weird. I got a lot of people writing in suddenly out of, about my Fix It Felix Jr. cabinet too, which is strange. Like out of nowhere, suddenly. So somebody must have linked to the video about it or something. Mm. That was kind of weird. But my favorite bit, not really a feedback, but of general discussion was on Facebook. There was a thread started by Rob O'Hara, who you might know as the guy who is the flack that you don't know, or anyway, something like that. Anyway, he posted a photo of a Sinistar cockpit cabinet, which is one of my grail cabinets, want, 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 so much want. But that was followed with a, a hilarious Sinistarbucks logo, under which oh, no. it says, I thirst. I found that very funny. But then Earl Green won the thread with this image he posted of a big Sinistar head and it says, I've got your Hunger Games right here, Andre. So I'm killing myself thinking that's the best ever. No, Robert Ferguson, he wins the whole internet because he posts a picture of the big Sinistar head on the top corner and then there's a couple of kids like from those Dick and Jane teach kids to read books and it's got the <laughs> caption, see Dick run, see Jane run, run coward, run, I am Sinistar, I hunger cowards. <laughs> killing myself we have the best listeners all that is so funny um so yes if you are not on facebook you should join for this if you are on facebook you really should go look at that thread so i mean even me talking about it's funny nothing is as funny as actually looking at those three pictures three in a row that almost brought me to tears they're so funny well done guys liked it great stuff and while you're after you visited us on on facebook you can stop by 
and and uh, follow us on Twitter. And you can let us know just how much you don't like our opinions <laughs> of the games that we talk about. Just like our our good ex-friends across the ocean. Uh, um, <laughs> uh, well, I'm not even going to mention their names. That'll show them. That's right. <laughs> Ten Pence Arcade has uninvited us from, from their sleepovers. <laughs> why, a why, a why? Didn't you like Volfide? to make sure that we understand that it's pronounced Volfide. You two aren't invited to sleep over now. Well, we're going to have to play that game when we slept over. I didn't want to play anyway. <laughs> I think that's kind of the general opinion, though, about about Volfide is that we're wrong and that it's yeah. a good game and pretty awesome. We just, uh, well, I just couldn't get into it. So. Yeah, I think we said that in the show as well. As much as I personally give it a thumbs down, I think it's I, I have a negative review. I had at the time this sense that when you look online, everyone else seems to like it. People seem to have a very positive feeling about it. They enjoyed playing it at the time. They enjoy coming back to it. I don't understand it at all. So I wouldn't say that I don't recommend our listeners to check out the game because I do see that for some reason you and I are the aberration here. Although we're right, everybody else is wrong. The game blows. So there. Well, that's always the case. <laughs> we're right about everything. Yes, we are. We're good that way. At least on our our, our little show here. Yeah. Once Once you step beyond the bounds of this, then... Reality sets in, and we realize how much we we suck. No, well, we were. Um, well, we suck at this week's game anyway. <laughs> well, okay, oh, well. this week's game, which was guessed by our buddy Jeff Salzman, aka Vintage Volts, who was recently a guest on an episode of No Quarter. Oh, listener, did that you not, not know aired? that exactly? Because it's a special <laughs> secret episode that is different and hasn't been released yet. So there, everyone can wonder about that and who the other guests might have been. Um, don't you wish you were one of the cool kids who knew about this stuff? <laughs> so do we. So, uh, but what has been released, though, speaking of releasing things, Jeff's own podcast, not coincidentally called Vintage Volts, episode four has come out, and it's a particularly good one because it's Jeff and former No Quarter guest Mike Whalen going through a 1976 Radio Shack catalog. So, <laughs> And it's cool because if you look on the show notes, you can open up the catalog as a PDF as well and kind of go through it page by page with them. So it's this two-parter where they just go through an, a big 1976 catalog for Radio Shack and discuss sort of the things you could buy at the time and what's changed and, and what they would be used for. And it, it's really a cool way to sort of thumb through a catalog. So the and the experience to do it, as much as podcasts are mostly fun, you know, you listen in the car. That's so how I do. It's a commuter sort of thing. This, I highly recommend get the PDF and listen at a time where you can be viewing it, like on a computer or an iPad or something, because it's really fun to be flipping the pages and going through it with them because they talk about oh here on page 80 i see this and it's it's a neat experience so i'll have a link to that that episode in the show notes because it's pretty cool awesome. um anyway the reason i brought that up was to bring up jeff because jeff on facebook wrote to us about our next game and he was i think the first person to guess it he said next week game has got to be marble madness hope you guys don't bust your balls playing it ha 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 nice <laughs> joke jeff i will be busting mike's balls while we talk about it yes we're talking about marble madness the trackball game that was published by Atari Games in 1984 and written, well, designed by Mark Cerny. Is that how you pronounce that? I pronounce it that way. I don't know if he does, but we will pronounce it Mark Cerny. And this is a, a this is a, a landmark game for a number of reasons, mm -hmm. actually. It's it's the f one of the first to use, what, true stereo sound? It's I know we should talk about the sound, but yes, as far as I can tell, people are saying it's the first true stereo sound game, which seems late to me. Like, that, I'm dubious about that. I put question marks in my notes. So I'm like, eight, 1984, really? No stereo before then? I'm dubious. Um, but it definitely they, was the first one to use, though, um, a, a full-on FM stereo sound chip. So it definitely mm -hmm. has that claim to fame. I just don't know if it's 
definitely the only thing that was a stereo game. The notes that I'm seeing in front of me that are written in my hand uh, say <laughs> that uh, the previous games used either monorail sound or simulated stereo. Ooh. What's the difference <laughs> between simulated stereo and actual stereo? Well, if I have two speakers and they're playing different things, I say that's stereo. It's uh, Duphonic is a term used to refer to a sound process by which a monorail recording is turned into a kind of fake stereo by splitting the signal into two channels, delaying the left and right channels by means of delay lines and other circuits, desynchronizing the two channels by fractions of a second, and cutting the bass frequencies in one channel with a high-pass filter, then cutting the treble frequencies in the other channel with a low-pass filter. The result is an artificial stereo effect without giving the listener the true directional sound characteristics of real stereo. I stand corrected. <laughs> Now you can wake up and we'll go back to talking about Marble Madness. I For Marble Madness, I gave some thought to what I'd call this game because it's Atari, it's 1984. And then I want to say, a lot of people say, well, okay, and it's a platform game or it's an isometric platform game. But I think, weirdly, I would categorize it as a race game more than a platformer because I think of platform, as much as, yes, there's sort of a platform element here and you're doing leaping and you're going through tunnels and, and all that business and vacuums. And it's a weird <laughs> game with a ball. But it's it's so much about how fast can you get it done. It's all about time, not about the number of men you have. And so I think of it more in the race category than a platform category, at least and for then, me personally. And that timer really, really changes how, it changes the, the entire, um, I guess feel of the game, the yep. way you play it, and, and because there's a, there's a cheat that you can enable in Mame and turn that timer off, and it's a different experience entirely. Uh, it so, would be, yeah, because there's so much pressure to try to finish, like because the and the timer you so you get so many seconds to finish a, a level, of course, and then the time that you have left that you don't use up of, say, your 60 seconds gets added to the next course. So, so there's a lot of pressure to try to finish as fast as possible, which, of course, in doing so, you will probably die much more often. And every time you die, you lose time on the clock. So it, it works against you. Yeah, this is this is a game, and there are a few of them out there like this, that doesn't you don't have a set number of men. Uh, you have one, basically one life that ends when you run out of time on a map. Mm -hmm. So if, you know, if you can die as many times, I guess, as you want, or as many times as it takes, as long as you get to the end of the maze by, uh, before zero, you're good for the next, the next map. And, and so you start kind of at, at the top of this little uh, MC Escher-esque structure, mm -hmm. and it has, uh, you know, the graph paper grid lines all over it which i think is a kind of a really cool visual effect yeah and it really lets you see where the slopes and stuff are so you can really yeah. understand the, that grid is essential to get the the topographical layout yep and uh and you you start at the top of this thing and you you basically have a marble that you have to roll down to the the exit hole or or yeah it's a it, roll down to the exit hole and by the time uh, uh, before your timer runs out, I think the first map is 60 seconds or something. Mm -hmm. um, and But it's not just you and trying to figure out how to get the marble down there, because if, if you fall too far off the ledge, uh, the, the marble will shatter, and then you obviously you start back up on that ledge, and you've lost time. And, and as you're making your way down, there are these, there's a black marble, I think that's the first thing that shows up, and it just comes at you and tries to drive you off the ledge. And there are a bunch of obstacles that you have to make your way around, which if you didn't have the timer going would be kind of a sort of a strategy. How do I kind of move my way, plot my way? It, it reminded me a lot of uh, Crystal Castles, you know, not only not only in the, in the look, but the gameplay as well, where you're avoiding 
obstacles and, and oncoming things that are trying to kill you. Um, but the difference here is that the 60 seconds or, or whatever is left on your timer really kind of changes how you have to play the game. Mm -hmm. And th there's a real different feel to the trackball, too. I found it when we played Crystal Castles, there's such a tight one-to-one -one relationship like to you and that, that guy on screen. You move it and it just moves and it's exactly like you go, you stop. Whereas here, it feels like it's got a bit of inertia to it and there's so many things that you hit that will bounce you and then you're fighting to pull back on the, like to roll the opposite direction of the trackball to slow yourself down and there's areas you can skid across because they, they have no um, traction. It'll be like like a, a, an ice area and things and you jump through the sky. So it's more that you're trying to control something that has inertia so the trackball feel is different. But you're totally right that that timer, which in... Um, Mark Cerny, in an interview online, talked about how he took that algorithm from pole position. He was a huge fan of pole position. And so he just grabbed the timer algorithm and just used that as is because it was the idea. And when you finish it, whatever time you have left goes on, and that'll be the, the limiting factor for the game. So it's kind of neat that that's where it came from. Um, but for me, the this game has a lot of character. Like there's it, And it's interesting because there isn't an actual character. There was a big fight, I guess, between Cerny and the marketing people in Atari who wanted to add a character to the game, like make the, the ball that you play, the little, the little glass marble, be a smiley face. And on all the art, they want to be a smiley face and, and, and to give it a character name. And he was like, well, no, I don't, I don't want anything to have a face or a character. It's just going to be like in a world of weird stuff. The birds won't have faces. The enemies are sort of shapes and that's what he wanted. And so they kind of struggled about that. And I think that even though there isn't a distinctive character, like a Pac-Man or a Donkey Kong in here, there's a lot of characterization, like the, the whole the whole world you're in moves and and changes and the way you move is is very alive and in the way that the whole world seems alive and the little birds and the hammers that come at you and I, I find the whole game has a ton of character it's really really charming and fun to play i loved it yeah i i think that has a lot to do with the fact that because you when you start on this thing and you, and you make your way down you're not seeing the entire map on the screen you don't have a static background. The, the the action and everything that's happening more or less revolves around where your marble is on the map. So as you start, uh, and as you start, and you you kind of move from the top of one screen down to the bottom, the screen will scroll along with you. I, there are variations, of course. You can as you fall off a, a ledge, it stops moving and, and that sort of thing. But because everything is sort of centered on on moving around the marble, it, it really makes it um, weirdly. It really makes it something that. For me, anyway, I, I could identify a lot more with that than if it were a static map and the marble was moving around and I could see everything going on at once. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It adds to the pressure that you got the clock counting against you. Every time you die, you lose a few seconds. So like, well, we talked about how you basically have an unlimited number of lives. If you die three or four times, you will probably run out of time. There simply <laughs> isn't enough time to die that often. So it effectively limits the number of men you can have, which is kind of cool as you're playing this bonkers isometric mini golf game or whatever this is supposed to be like it's kind of kind of strange um we talked what? about mark cerny i should mention a bit that he won uh he was given the, the lifetime achievement award at the game developers choice awards in 2004 from the international uh game developers association because he he did this he also did major havoc before this so like those are his two big arcade games also uh, an awesome game exactly and then he moved on to mostly console games but like kid chameleon crash bandicoot spyro the dragon 
And so, like, big, big stuff. And then he's been a, a designer, a programmer, a design consultant. He's been a producer. He's sort of done, like, everything. He he did this at Atari when he was 17 or something. And he's just Whoa. been, like, a, a phenom since then. So, really an interesting guy. And he did a post-mortem of Marble Madness at the Game Developer Conference in 2011. So, I'll put a link to that video in the show notes. It's an hour or something long. Really, really interesting. It's called The Making of 1984's Marble Madness. And he talks about like where the idea came from, which is interesting because he was a big fan of the massive variety of genres. You look at like, here are the games that were in 1983 and like they're all so different. And he talks about the 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 culture at Atari at the time and how he originally it was him and somebody else wanted to do this um it's like a 3D RPG game and they just couldn't possibly do it. And then they came up with the idea for Marble Madness and, and it went through the iterations. He talks about the hardware they were going to use it on and then didn't do that. So they took the different approach and why and what the, the pros and cons were. And so you get to learn a lot from this about the sort of the minutia of development in Atari at the time, which I found really interesting. Because I think when you look at a game like this, which is a game I really love, it's important to look at this in the historical context because this is 84 and it's coming so it's coming after the big crash of 1983 and well that's something i didn't personally notice at the time it had a huge effect on companies like atari and cerny in his talk talks about how in the 1983 design rules sort of in place at atari when they were developing this the rule was you had to focus on three things three things were essential if you wanted to get your game approved it had to be a unique game the big thing in Atari was they, they were under the idea that any game that's like any other game won't sell. So, for instance, if there's ever, he says specifically, if you want to do a top-down racing game, well, you can't do that. There's been a top-down racing game before. There's ever been one, you can't do one anymore. That's going to be a new rule. Only completely brand new things, which gave them the impetus of come up with something strange like Marble Madness. It had to be unique controllers because they found like the games that seemed to be popular were using something weird and let's do something you couldn't have at home. And it's sort of the same thing that drove, I think, a couple of years ago, the idea in theater to go all 3D. They're like, oh my goodness, we're, we're in trouble financially. Let's give people something they can't get at home, even if maybe they don't like it. But that's why so many games were coming out with weird controllers, in this case, a trackball. And the it was a big push for simultaneous multiplayer games. And we've talked a few times in earlier shows about how like, I'm a big fan of games two, two or more people can play at once. But most of the games we've discussed, if two people play, it's one at a time. And this begins an era at, at Atari and in other places where they really pushed for multiplayer. And I ne it never clicked with me before that the one of the big reasons for that was these games were very expensive. Like an operator would buy a game for $2,000, $2,500. And they would get the to keep the quarters, but they'd have to pay back the game. There's the the maintenance costs. They've got heat. They've got hydro. They've got all, all the... This, money they're gonna have to take in like five thousand dollars in quarters just to pay back this thing for for its life so when you have two people playing at once you're doubling the quarter intake the real push for simultaneous multiplayer was simply to say we can have people paying 50 cents a time to play because two people are playing quarters that's the real reason so many games went multiplayer and ne that never clicked with me before um so anyway the whole the whole um video thing he does this whole uh um post-mortem is fascinating and gives a real insight to the mentality within atari at the time so i highly recommend it we'll have a link to that in the show notes well, in fact, if 
if you if you look at the games that are popular, the arcade games that are popular today, even the new ones that are you see in places like Dave and Buster's House of the Dead and and these shooting games, the idea is that that you can play with your your friends. Mm-hmm. You know, so you're standing if it's say it's House of the Dead and you're your buddy, your shoulder to shoulder, and you're shooting these zombies as, as you come. And and if you die before he does, are you really not going to put more quarters in to, to keep playing with him? Of course, you sure. Know? Yeah, that's so, the gauntlet um, rule. Like yeah, every, keep <laughs> keep paying quarters. Yeah, so that so that's that's absolutely a a key to to uh, the success not only of, of Marble Madness but of a lot of the games that that did this. Um, and and the fact that that uh, Marble Madness is. I, uh, Crystal Castles came out first, you know, and and they they share a similar look in the trackball interface, but that's kind of where uh, the similarities end. And mm-hmm. and and Marble Madness was unique enough and interesting enough at the time that uh, it really stood out, and it kind of became one of those. I don't know if I don't know if you could call it. Um, I don't know if you could call it something that that could like change the course of arcades or anything like that because it was so late and and because it was only uh it was only really popular for about 6 weeks and we'll talk about that in just a minute yeah. but um but it definitely set some some high high marks at the at a time when there were a lot of crap games coming out that that companies the 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 arcade uh manufacturers were just shoving out you know in the hopes of getting any quarters at all they you know they had that that turnaround where you would just put a game out there and by the time it was it was um it was used up a couple of weeks later and or nobody but people realized that that they didn't want to play it they would go back to to the manufacturer they would put another board in there and ship it out with another crap game get a few quarters and it, it sort of became this um cycle of of just not not really good games and and desperate manufacturers as as profits were falling, and this was kind of right before uh, this was this was before you had you know the the Street Fighter and the um, beat 'em up revolution that sort of changed everything. So and the funny uh, thing is you can't it's too expensive. Like these games, if you've got some guy who's going to have an arcade or just have one machine in his laundromat or whatever, and if you spend thousands of dollars on it, it can't be something that only takes in a bit of money for a month or two and you're never going to pay it back and the problem was like there's such a glut of games on 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 the market at the time and all these games sold in like 1983 1982 and it's hard to come back in 1984 and say oh throw those out give me new games like so you know operators start to get more and more picky and more and more choosy and say like you've burned me three times i'm ten thousand dollars into these games i'm not keep buying more <laughs> so i think that's one of the big impetuses because this is the first game on atari's system one hardware so they, they moved, with this game, they moved into doing system hardware, where you'd have a bunch of games that would all be in a shared cabinet with shared... It's sort of like a JAMA sort of idea. Oh, how I love them. So <laughs> technically, you can convert any System 1 game to any other game. And so the idea was you would drop the $2,500 and buy the first one, but then it would be a lot less expensive to say... Change your Marble Madness into a Roadrunner or Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom or Road Blasters. I think there's... I think this is really limited thinking. And I think this is an idea of like left hand not knowing what the right hand is doing or what have you. Because in the one hand, you have Atari saying, it's got to be original. It's got to be original. We we can't do any games like any other games. And one of the most important things, everything's got to use a super unique controller. And at the same time, you've got the management saying, we're going to come out with a system where people can really cheaply swap between them, including, I guess, now you have to swap the entire controller board every time because everything's going to have a unique controller. You can't convert from um, 
Marble Madness to Road Blasters without changing the control. You Now you don't need a trackball, but you do need a, a, a wheel, and it doesn't have a pedal on the bottom. And so none of the System 1 games use a trackball except Marble Madness. And I think none of them use a pedal except Road Blasters. Like, they're all very different. So I don't think we have a... A fully executed system here they should have said we're going to come out with 10 games that use like and here's a whole machine that has all the controls you need they should have done the sorry charlie we approach <laughs> clearly <laughs> we know more about this in atari because <laughs> right. if you have enough joysticks you can solve any problem <laughs> throw more joysticks at it so there's a couple of things a couple of notes i want to put in the show notes about this um there's a really interesting atari system one cabinet homebrew so over at mainworld.info um, a fellow put together his own Atari System 1 based on the Atari specs. So it isn't cobbled together from other things. He did use parts, but he says no actual old hardware was harmed in the making of this at all. <laughs> it all can still be put back. In um, but he has used the original specification documents and then just developed his own Atari System 1 cabinet. So I thought it was really cool. So I have a link to that. And also like the System 1, there's an operating manual and a schematic packet supplement and all those. So we'll link to those in the show notes. Um, but I do think as much as like, I like the system on hardware graphics and you can kind of see how something like Marble Madness and Road Blasters, they have kind of the same feel in their graphics. I can see how they are in a sense of a kind technologically, but I don't know that the full execution here, they were thinking it all through. When, if you're going to have games that need so much to convert between them. And then, of course, then they put the to limit so people can't just buy ROM, like get a ROM and change the game on their own without coughing up more money to Atari. They put in that 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 slapstick chip, um, which is copy protection stuff, but I don't really know about that chip. Like, do you know what the slapstick is? So I'm looking at, at uh, AaronGiles.com um, has a, a page. Which is an actual name. His last yes. name is .com. <laughs> it is yes, uh, slapstick.html where he talks about the uh, it's it's the Atari slapstick FAQ and basically this was a security chip made by Atari uh, and they used it for bank switching and security in several coin operated games uh, and it looks like the slapstick lasted from eighty four through ninety so for quite a while okay. before they hmm. slipped to something called the sloop uh, or the sloop stick <laughs> which was the 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 newer protection and unfortunately well I, I guess. I guess this is where we take a moment and thank the the main gods that there are really smart people out there who know how to crack this kind of encryption because not only do with not only would this chip prevent home play other than having an actual cabinet, but there are many, many different kinds of slapsticks. They're revisions and they're not interchangeable. So pulling one out of one board and sticking sticking it into another one isn't going to fix your problem that you can't play because you're using a fake board or you're trying to emulate. So basically this is Digital rights management. It's exactly why it can mm -hmm. bite me. So <clears throat> what I think uh, about that. And this gets pretty pretty technical in here, but there's a there's a little section at the end there that talks about like how the slapstick works. If you're really interested in and in how it interacts with memory in the DRAM, uh, and he, there's a list of slapstick games. It looks like there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Eight, How high can Mike count? <laughs> Thirteen. That's as high as I can count. Thirteen. No. <laughs> one, two, three, many. Twenty-six games in all that use ver uh, versions of the slapstick. That's a lot of slapstick. That is a lot of slapstick, and um, I don't like DRM. <laughs> I do not. I do not like. I myself also either do not like DRM. 
there is a, there's a, a page at six at uh, systems16.com that talks about the Atari System 1 hardware specifically. And since we're talking about that, we'll go through it really quickly. The System 1 had a uh, Motorola MC68010 uh, at 7.16 megahertz. It had a, an, a 6502 chip at 1.7 9 megahertz that it used for sound. It also had several custom sound chips, including the YM2151 at 3.57 megahertz, two Pokey chips uh, also at 1.79 megahertz, and the TMS5220 at 625 kilohertz. Uh, that is a lot of chips. There's a lot of chips. It's um, a lot of game, though. Like, it's I, a lot of game. Yeah, I, and, and that's that's one of the things that we like to talk about here on No Quarter is, you know, when I'm playing a game, if is this thing laggy? Am I having trouble with with pixels that, that you know, I, I clearly missed whatever was shooting at me and, and yet I'm dead? Uh, and I didn't I didn't catch any of that at all no. in this game. It was very smooth. And there's a lot of action going on, especially because, uh, like I mentioned earlier, it's not just the marble moving around on a static background. The, the background is moving with you and in sort of in concert with the whole thing. Mm-hmm. It's uh, really alive in, yeah. in a really fun way with a lot of character. Yeah, so so the, the hardware behind it definitely holds up in this case. Now, it's interesting that this was one of the first games at Atari that they coded it in C instead of assembler. And yet it is really zippy and really fast, which I guess is a testament to the, to the um, uh, compiler they used. But... Uh, in, in Mark's talk and also in an interview online as well, we'll link to all of it, he, he discusses how that both sped up and slowed down the process. And even the process of development, they were using like this PDP-11 behind the scenes, so you sort of code stuff, go over there, enter it, wait for it to burn something to an EEPROM, come back, like, like the, the iteration, the iterative process in developing these games, I guess was a crazy slow nightmare, um, which really impacted like how fast they could turn things around. So a lot of this I, I never knew before, like sort of watching and reading these these interviews um, for this game. So I'm really pleased we played this. I, I enjoyed this game tremendously. I remember back in the day really liking it. I had fond memories of it. And playing it again just reminded me, yeah, this is a classic for a reason. It really stands out as being very different than the games we've we've played so far. This is a unique game on all the list of 80-something games we've now talked about. This stands alone to be very different than the things we've all, we've discussed. And it's super fun and, and super charming. And it's really, this is a really good game. I like this a lot. Now, Mark Cerny, we'd mentioned is the lead designer. Uh, Bob Flanagan was the software engineer. He's the guy who sat there and did the code. Cool. Um, and uh, the game's music was compo- composed by Brad Fuller and Hal Cannon. It's great spent- music. Mm, yeah, but it says, that, good. says that they spent a few months becoming familiar with the capabilities of the sound chip, uh, which was the um, the, the FM Yamaha sound chip thing, that you'd right? yeah. Well, it says it's the the Yamaha FM sound chip, which was similar to the DX7 synthesizer. Um, and it, it's, 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 the feature is that it creates the music in real time so that it's in synchronization with the game's on-screen action at all Which times. Which is cool because I did find that the music is almost more like a film score than just arcade mm-hmm. sounds because mm-hmm. the music does see it's, it's, well, it's music. It does seamlessly change to match what you're doing. You're racing, you're, you're almost hit by a guy, you're falling off the edge, you're melting an acid. And so while there's the sound effects for those, there's also the music, which is just like a 
professionally done film score for the game you're playing. So I think that's the real first. This is the earliest game I can think of that is something like that. Fantastic sound. Love the music. Love the sound effects. I love the graphics here as well, but the sound is just as good. I'm right to the, the coin-in sound. It says this deep ringing bell, and which is in a couple of games, but I really like it here. Um, although it does make me feel like the game's about to break into Hell's Bells you know, by ACDC. <laughs> or actually, it reminded me of something out of the movie Phantasm. So it's a much more horrific coin-in sound than you get for a game like this. But I, yeah. I, I really, really dug it. And I like the... The look of these courses, like you had said, it's an M.C. Escher sort of look. And it is. And as much as it's not like, well, you if you go there, you can't go here. It is lots of platforms and weird slopes and, and interesting, you know, scoops that your ball can go in and shoot it down other places. And it's it's like this mad, huge, three-dimensional bonkers mini golf that's really fun. I think there are, I didn't get this far, but I think there are six courses in yeah, total you can play through. And you can actually basically win the game like if you get to the end you're you're done yeah there are only six courses um and for for my skill level there's <laughs> more than be more than, that's more than enough uh <laughs> the interviews that mark's done i think he talks about it in the in the postmortem, but it, it's, I've, I've seen it elsewhere he talks about uh there were a lot of other elements that he wanted to include but he couldn't because of, of technical limitations of the time and and um and some of them that atari just said no i think there's a few documents out there that have some of the diagram have have line drawings of things that he wanted to include and wasn't able to definitely worth a look if you're interested in the history of this game there's actually um, he did up a i guess before you would get to do a game at atari you drew up a design document like a, basically a business plan for your game a big pitch and when he left atari he couldn't take it with him because you know atari was when you're at Atari, you are creative, you can do whatever you want. But when you leave, you're out, you're gone, you don't get to keep any stuff, out you go. And then when Atari finally went under, they were just throwing everything out. And that guy who runs AtariGames.com sure. went there and grabbed all this stuff and scanned it all. So the Marble Madness design document is now available online. So you can look at all those original plans and all of that. So I'll make sure we link to that too, because it's really cool. But the, with only six levels, I think that was one of the issues in that the game is relatively short. Because if once you get good enough, you go through your six courses and you win the game. And when you do win, I guess the game just ends. It doesn't start over. So this was a, a huge success in arcades for a month and a half or something. And the profits died. Yeah. Because I guess people said, well, I've, yeah, so, I've finished. So Marble Madness was released in December of 1984. Uh, they sold about 4,000 cabinets, which is, I guess, pretty high, especially well, for... You know, it's funny, because that's, but, I think, high for 1984, but you look at the games, you look at, like, Pac-Man and stuff, and it's missing a couple of zeros. It's amazing how much it shrunk, this industry, from 1982 to 1984. It's crazy. Absolutely. Uh, and it immediately became the highest-earning game in most arcades. However, uh, it... I'm reading from Wikipedia here. It says the game consistently fell from, from this top ranking during its uh, seventh week in arcades uh, that Atari tracked the game's success. Cerny attributed the six-week arcade life to Marble Madness's short gameplay length. He believed that most players lost interest after mastering it and simply moved on to other games, which, yeah, that makes sense because, um, well, it doesn't start over. It doesn't get harder. You're not even playing, you know, it doesn't even repeat on the same difficulty so you could continue playing if you really want to the game just ends and it's funny because there's there's these six courses and there's essentially from what i can tell having only seen a few of them <laughs> but look at the rest <laughs> online that there's no real repetition in these levels so you've got six courses that are six individual courses and it feels 
and looks and plays like the kind of game that could have 99 levels. Like there's, this could be a load runner type game. It should be. It should have been a game that had. They should have brought people in and said, let's let's put out course packs like they've done for racing games. It could have been Marvel Madness. It's got 99 levels and maybe you get a cheat code or something. Or maybe when you get to a certain every 10 levels, it'll bring up a a number on screen that you could type in mm-hmm. or you could say, I want to start at level 10. I think if they had had a, just more levels, same hardware, same everything else, wait two months, release it with a bunch of levels, this probably could have been a much longer earning hit in the arcades because I think it's awesome. And in fact, a lot of the home ports featured extra levels that weren't in the in the arcade. But I didn't play those. Well, no. And in this this game, uh, Marble Madness came out later in, in the run of arcade games. And so the, the ports were running by the time it showed up in, in people's homes, the ports were running on a more advanced hardware. So instead of, I, I think it was on the Apple II, and I'm sure it was on yeah, the- there was, there was the Apple II GS one that was a really good port. Yeah, the but, the, but the, the really great versions weren't on the Spectrum, the ZX Spectrum and things like that. They were on the Amiga and, and the Atari ST and the, the, Atari, the um, Apple II GS. And, and in fact- from what I was reading, most people, most of the reviews around the time that came out of the home port said that if you have to have one, you want the Apple 2GS version. Or I think the Amiga one too. I think this was one of the big, you know, show off the graphics games for the Amiga, mm-hmm. like one of the really mm-hmm. big um, early Amiga. I never was an Amiga guy, but as far as I remember, this was one of the games that would sort of people would show you how powerful an Amiga can be. Yep. So if you want to check out the home ports, you know, you can get an emulator or track down disk images and make your own um, for, for your, your vintage home computers. But really, I, there's no reason not to play this, the arcade version of it. It's, it's wonderful. It is. It is so much fun. I really, really like playing it. It's so different than other games and it's so polished and it's just such a wonderful example of isometric 3D. It looks fantastic. I, I love the colors. I love the charm. I love the character. And I particularly love the 3D effect of this marble rolling around. It's just wonderful. Now, there are certain Williams fans out there that I'm sure are going to write in and say, this is just bubbles because you're, you know, you're, you've got the trackball. Totally you're, you're, not you're bubbles. Moving your thing around the screen and avoiding other things that are chasing you. And the difference, I think, was, was again, we talked to, you know, how bubbles just had had some interesting ideas that didn't come together well. And this all just seemed to really piece together mm-hmm. to to come to be a, kind of a, uh, a whole gaming experience. You know, it's very polished and uh, the only, the only, Disadvantage, I guess, is that it's short, but that wasn't a problem for me because it's also very hard. <laughs> I, I, I enjoyed nothing more. The, the, one of my favorite parts of, the, of playing this game again was in my youth, I didn't play it much because it was a difficult game. And so I would, you know, get through the first level maybe and a little bit into the second one and that would be it. But I, I like that because you're zoomed in and because you can't see the whole screen, you don't always know what's coming next and mm-hmm. kind of anticipating that and, and keep glancing up at the clock and watching it count down. Oh God. And looking for the exit. No, here comes the black marble. And, um, and there, and you would, you know, sometimes you would drop into a hole and it would shoot down and pop up somewhere else. And, uh, yeah, I, I just, I love this game. I'm yeah. not as, 
I'm not really very good at it. Certainly not as good as I remember or, or as I'm going to tell everyone that I am. But I'm better than I remember because I remember being absolutely <laughs> awful and now I'm just pretty awful. <laughs> but yeah, like I didn't even like the idea of seeing all these levels. Yeah, not, not going to happen. There are many levels for me still to explore. Well, it's tough too because, you know, we talked about this, I, I think, in Joust. A, a lot of it is uh, and, and in Flicky and, and other games where you have to, to, uh, to manage your inertia. A lot of it is kind of uh, of figuring out how far to skid the ball and, and how to, to kind of round those corners and, and get around what's coming at you and not lose a lot of that momentum because mm-hmm. that shaves seconds off the clock. I found that especially like that, that stupid black marble engaging with that thing. Once it starts tapping you, you're kind of hosed because I spent all of my time just trying to like not fall off the edge that was trying to shove me over rather than continuing down down the track. But it's great how your little glass marble, you'll hit something or get hit by the, the enemy marbles and you get like the little dizzy lines around <laughs> you. It's such a great character thing where your, your marble's like, whoa. <laughs> and then, or, or hit that little acid puddle and you sort of dissolve <laughs> or fall off it and a little whistle as you fall. Like there's so many cute elements. Just, just wonderful. Great little character touches. Yeah, all those little touches really come together and and add up to a great gaming experience. Mm-hmm. Now, Carrington, how many points did your gaming experience rack up for you? Billion. I no, not even not true. even close. So there mm-hmm. are, like we said, there are six levels. I've got them here somewhere, and I can tell you where I got to. So um, I got as far as something called the aerial race, which I think is level four. Yeah, there's practice race, which is really the, the first course, and it's short, and it's like anybody can get through that. Then there's... The real races are the beginner race, the intermediate race, the aerial race that I've seen the first part of. <laughs> then there's something called the silly race, which I guess you go uphill instead of downhill. I don't know. Never got there. And then something called the ultimate race, which is sort of like all the obstacles back together and most difficult. But anyway, I got, I got as far as the beginning of the aerial race, which is the level with the little vacuum thingies on the side. And that was the death of me. Um, best I ever did, I think, was actually not even on that. I think I was on the level before, on the third level. But my highest score was 32,820. Oh, I hate you so much. I am happy to hear your sighs of frustration. Uh, all right. So I got also to the area level and I could, I could usually reliably make it there if I was paying attention. Yeah. I was usually end of the level before or I, or ideally I could finish that and make it to aerial, but that's as far as I ever got. Yeah. I, I found this a lot, this game, easy for me to say, right? Um, a lot of how well I did in this game depended on how much I was concentrating. And I know that sounds kind of like a, Silly thing to say, maybe, but some games you can just kind of play and you don't really have to engage your brain that much or, or watch carefully what you're doing. And you can still do mm, pretty well or, or you'll kind of do the same as you always do, even if you're sitting there and, and intently making sure that you're playing the game properly. Marble Madness was one where if I wasn't zoned in, I guess, uh, I did much more. I did poorly. And and um, and so for me, it was kind of an exhausting experience because it, it takes a lot out of me to concentrate that much. But um, so my sessions, game sessions tended to be a little bit shorter than, than say Pac-Man or something like that. But I did manage to get to the area level on a regular basis. And the, the best that I managed to, the best that I racked up was at 31,650 points. I'm happy I, to have beaten you. I hate you so much. Go me. <laughs> I found the same thing. Like I found 
the beginner race, the early one, is super simple. Like you really, it's sort of designed that you're not going to die in that race if you're paying any attention at all. And then you've got the, so that's the practice race. So you've got the beginner race, which is, you know, a real one. But if you do okay at all, you're going to get past that. And it really comes down to how much past it you get so you can send more time forward. So I found I would always get past those first two. And then I would either die on the next level, on intermediate. If things weren't going well for me, then I would get bounced off a couple times too much and I'd run out of time and I'd die there. And that like often at that point where you got those, it's like a rolling hill that literally rolls, like it moves. And you get on there and it would, it would shove me. I would get in front of it and it would go, here we go. Right the end and off, <laughs> off my roll would go. Or you get those pools of acid that would swallow you up. So I would often die in the intermediate race. And if not, then I would make it to the next level, the aerial race, but I would not be bringing forward enough time and stuff. And I would be Mm -hmm. not on my game and I would die quite early. So I never, never got even close to finishing the aerial race part. Like I can't get past there, but it is disappointing to think like if I could get past there, there's only two more courses and you're done. So if you think about it, we're getting 66% of the way through the game playing just a little bit this week and that's it. So you can see how people would fin anybody who's good at these things is going to in a six week period finish the game. And I think that's one of the reasons why as much as I love this game, I can't see me wanting to have a cabinet because I bet you I would finish it. And then I'd be like, well, now I've got this big, expensive 400 pound thing and I'm done with it. It's good that you could maybe swap it to another game, like another system one game. But frankly, I would rather just, you know, get a, a road blasters and then temporarily swap it over to a Marble Madness. Um, so while I love the game, I don't think I'd want to get a cabinet for for the reason that I don't think it would sustain enjoyment long enough. Well, they did des- they did design a sequel called Marble Man. Marble it was Man. going to be released, and it was supposed to address a lot of the issues of, of it being short and, and putting in some of the things that Mark had designed. Now, Mark was not involved with the development with um, um, the sequel, was so poorly re- received uh, it, it scored so poorly in testing that they just they just canceled the whole thing Man. they usually do that a lot i remember mark talking about how and some other interview i remember when we did an earlier atari game they talked about that was the process you do your design document come up with a plan they'd make the game they they get like 80 percent, 90 percent in finished they'd come up with a cabinet um, even if it wasn't going to be the full production thing, but before they really committed, they would then place that in one or two arcades and see how they performed. And if it didn't perform well enough, then it just got canned. And so a lot of games got that far. That would be a really interesting episode to do one time. Talk about games that got far enough to be put in an arcade and then <laughs> die a miserable death and never actually get made. There's a lot of almost Atari games. When you're ready for a real challenge, you're ready for Marble Madness. There are deadly steelies, marble munchers, acid pools, digital waves, vacuum cleaners, catapults, pistons, pounding hammers, killer birds, and they're all after you. Do you have what it takes to reach the silly maze where everything's upside down, or the ultimate maze where even the maze moves? Do you have what it takes, or will Marble Madness make you lose your marbles? Marble Madness! Carrington, Mm -hmm. tell me about the cabinet. There are smiley faces on it. Not really. <laughs> Remember how I talked before about how the marketing people wanted them to make smiley faces? Yeah, like, so, the, like the bubbles. Exactly. <laughs> so they did a compromise here where if you there's no actual smiley faces, but if you look at the, the three marbles on the marquee that have 
sort of reflections on them, you can kind of see how it's like an eye and a smiley face. So that was sort of the compromise. So it, it hints at, it's got like a subliminal smiley face on the marbles, <laughs> but it's not really there. Um, good, bright marquee. I like it. Side art though is generic. I mean, it's a system one cab after all. So the, the whole point was that you could interchange games. So you're not going to have massive, you know, marble madness side art if you can then change it into road blasters. So it made sense. It would be just Atari. So the side art is just this big silver and blue stripey Atari logo, which is okay, but it is D-U-L-L dull. Um, (laughs) And I think that's too bad. I mean, I totally get that the economic needs of the time that were there to make it that it was something that would span multiple games in the same cabinet but that doesn't mean it had to be this dull it could have been something cool i mean at least incorporate the atari fuji symbol or something that looked neat so there are a lot of people have done really neat things with more generic main cabinets it's i can't believe nobody at atari could have come up with something better so it's i like the shape of the cabinet but boy that side art is um now the control panel art is perfect love it bright red orange in color and it's really appealing and it's got just the two trackballs and no buttons other than the tiny player one and player two start buttons um so the art's got the blue ball on the left and the red ball on the right and the graphics have the ball sort of racing toward each other and so your trackball becomes part of the art because you're moving a ball. So I, I, I love that they incorporated that and the graphics have them sort of smashing in the middle, just really just a little explosion thing with the arrows. But it's a perfect encapsulation of the two-player competitive nature because that's one of the things we haven't talked about. You can play two-player on this game at once and that would have been... I, I didn't get to do that this week, but that would make a big difference. That would have been super fun. Yeah, and the I control think... panel takes in like the, the, the rolling nature, all that. Like, it's a simple, perfect controller and I love it. I love, love the controller on this. I think when when you and I face each other in, in Kansas City for Kansas Fest, that, that we need to find one of these Marble Madness machines and, and mm. I will destroy you. Almost certainly, yes. <laughs> but it would be good because we both got basically to the same point in the game. So that would make it, I think, a fun competition because you'd be smacking into each other, I guess. I don't know. I don't think I've ever played this two-player, but that'd be super fun. Um, oh, on the cabinet as well, this, there's a speaker placement on the on the system one cabs is worth mentioning because the speaker grill is between the control panel and the monitor it's lower down instead of up front which is great because it's blasting the music right at you instead of downward that's kind of cool and it also raises the display up a bit um it also has much more upright play than earlier games which is something to talk about as well because if you look at earlier cabinets like compare this against a like a galaxian cabinet for instance then that has the monitor inside the cabinet lean back almost at a horizontal position and you stand in front of the cabinet and you look down into it as if it's sort of like a tall cocktail cabinet with a hood on it um whereas here by the time we get to the system one cabs they're not that galaxian is atari but you know what i mean the system yeah. one cabs the monitor is upright and it's facing you and i think that's a nicer display and it's more in like literally in your face but i think it's also like little things i i'm now getting now that we're 85 or something episodes into this i'm starting to get a feel for the the wash of of movement <laughs> through arcades and i think this is indicative of how things like attract mode became super important i mean you can't really have an effective attract mode unless people not at the machine can view it early attract modes on on early games with these lean back monitors would be 
enticing people who are basically standing at the machine, poised about to put a quarter in. So the, the track mode is just going to push you over the edge and kind of close the sale or give you instructions so that maybe you'll play a second time and do better. But later games well, have a track modes that are designed to make you walk over and check the machine out. I mean, heck, they, they ideally would want to make you walk away from somebody else's machine and come over to them. And... And this late in the game, I think it's a sense that the attract mode is more like a carnival barker. And the later we go, the more it becomes like that. And so I think these upright displays are indicative of that movement in 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 cabinets and in attract modes and stuff. So it all sort of ties together. Well, I think that's something that even the arcade owners understood. I mean, I, for a while there, at least the arcades around where, where I lived... Um, when they were popular, you would walk in and, and almost every game, certainly the, the really popular ones would not only, you know, be positioned in the arcade to make sure that you could get maximum eyeballs as people were walking by, but they also had big monitors set up above them so you could watch the gameplay, mm -hmm. even if you couldn't see over the crowd of people standing around the person playing. Yeah, the Nintendo ones were good at that. They'd have that one up above, especially. And yep. it's so interesting because early on you look at cabinets being... Like so many cabinets made in a in a in a cabaret version, in like a small version, and they go in bars and you want to sort of hide them and they're almost like a dirty little secret. Like we'll have them, but that's you know, that's an arcade and it would be smaller to be quieter. And by eighty four, it's like, no, big monitor in your face, shouting out a track mode, loudspeakers face <laughs> forward to blast out and be sort of competitive with getting people's attention. And it's such a different mentality than you'd get in, say, nineteen eighty, and it's only four years later. So I just want to backtrack for a bit and ask you about that sequel, the the Marble Man one, where the marketing got its way and got the, the happy faces on everything. I don't see how it never actually got released out into the wild, but I swear I've, I've actually seen that cabinet, maybe not in the real world, but but online somewhere. Did So did it actually get made or was it just completely canceled? The game got uh, so far into development, actually, that um, it looks like there were some cabinets completed and at least one or two of them have made it out into the wild. Uh, the Arcade Museum, arcade-museum.com, has a page for this. There is a um, there is a cabinet that ha features, it looks like, the kind of the three-joystick layout with a really huge monitor. Uh, one of the things that they tried when the when the trackball version of Marble Man, uh, of, of Marble madness two didn't do well was in, uh, to take the trackball out and put joysticks in instead. And it looks like the cabinet that they have set up here is of the joystick version. Oh, interesting. This would not be a game you'd want to play with a joystick. That, that's I, an awful yeah. idea. No, no, no. Now, maybe marble man, I guess the marketing people got their way and they made it a face. Um, maybe that played differently, but I can't. Oh, and I see marble man's a jam cab. Of course of it is. Of course it is. <laughs> <laughs> but I can't, I can't imagine like playing this game without a trackball. This is one of the the ultimate perfect trackball games. Yeah, and unfortunately, the the combination I, I think of the the joystick and and the the fact that it came out in 1991 or it was, was going to come out in 1991. That's right when Street Fighter and these fighting games were really exploding. And I just don't think people were cared anymore about about this sort of gameplay. Well, you know, they um, Marvel versus Capcom. They should have had Marble Madness, uh, Marble Man versus Street Fighter. Street there Fighter you would go. Kick its ass. <laughs> you just throw marbles at Street Fighter or something. <laughs> or you throw them on the ground and Street Fighter falls over. <laughs> <laughs> so now, uh, that this does bring up an, this, the trackball versus joystick talk does bring up a, a point that I wanted to mention, and that's that uh, if you're playing at home, you definitely want to make sure that you're not that you're not playing with a keyboard or or a 
a plug-in joystick. I, I happen to have the XRcade standalone uh, trackball unit that they don't make anymore. Um, I know that there is um, now, if you buy their tank stick, that that massive, huge thing mm-hmm. that weighs as much as a, a cabinet, I think that has a a, um, a trackball in it, and it looks like they also sell. I know Ultimark sells them, but it looks like X Arcade, uh, the X Gaming website, also has a trackball assembly that you can buy that has a USB connector. It's already complete, so you don't really have to put it together. You just have to put it in something. It's fifty five dollars. So if you're you know. And if you're if you're playing games that are going to use trackballs, you know, it's worth it to buy one, I think, and and find a place find a, a place in your in your either your your XRcade or your cabinet to put put a, a trackball. I did find that that for the XRcade, I had to kind of adjust it to because they have one of these down at the at the one up. And I played a little bit on that and came home and played it on MAME and it was wildly different. So I had to kind of adjust the sensitivity of the trackball until I got it hmm. to, to be about the same. But that, for some reason, then I don't, I'm not sure what this is about. I don't know if it's just the, the default MAME settings or, you know, they, they all default obviously to the same setting. Uh, whereas when you go to the arcade, you kind of have, you know, each machine each each machine that uses a trackball is going to be adjusted for the game that it's playing. It's sort of like the using a spinner with um, Arkanoid is going to be a, a heck of a lot different than using it uh, with a, a different game. So you, you're going to have to you may have to go in there and mess around a little bit and find the right settings before you you know because at first I was very frustrated because the ball would just like fly off the edge and crash and die, or I, I felt that it, you know I, it would it would zip across the screen. If I if I spun it, but then if I tried to, you know, do the the fine controls to to get around a corner, it would be too, it would be sluggish. So and you assumed, of course, it wasn't your lack of skill. It was definitely a hardware problem. Well, it couldn't have been my lack of skill. I'm not. <laughs> of course Carrington. not. Couldn't be. <laughs> oh, I see. Got it. Okay, cool. I so, didn't adjust my trackball. So, but I clearly look at our scores. I didn't need to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I just just cut that last part out of our. <laughs> Oh, the show entirely, Karen. Don't don't. don't I'm cutting all that. your parts out of our show entirely. <laughs> well, you you've been doing that for a long time. Yeah. Right? So overall, uh, both of us love this game, and I know mm-hmm. that that generally makes for kind of a boring show. And yet, but... I wouldn't buy one. Well, no, there's no reason to. I mean, as long as you have a good trackball at home. I think so too, but mostly because I anticipate that I would eventually get bored of it. I love the game, but I think if there's only six levels, there's not enough machine here there's not enough game there there's not enough there there you're gonna have to pay about 800 bucks to get a dedicated cabinet usually these were converted from something else so the better way to go really the cheaper way to go is to just get a generic system one cabinet and turn it into a marble madness which is what i would do but even so i just don't see dropping that kind of money because it's a popular game um it's going to cost a bunch and I don't think it's going to have the staying power. I think it's the kind of game that's amazing and worth playing, but go to play it in MAME or go to an arcade and play it. I don't think it's worth having as a dedicated cabinet, which is weird to say because I think it's an awesome game and I loved playing it this week. I'm just sort of anticipating that if I owned one six months later, I wouldn't want to keep playing it. Unlike, for so, instance, my first choice for cabinet was um, uh, a Gravatar because I knew no matter how much <laughs> I play, I will never see level three of that game. So your reason for for not getting the is I would anticipate I'd be too good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're just so good at this. Is it? It's not that it's not that it's easy to emulate. 
because you just need the trackball. It's that there's just not much game there. So you see, so you, you're saying that that those last level and a half, two levels, whatever it is, you wouldn't anticipate that most of the gameplay would happen there just because it's so much more difficult. Nope. I whip. I well, I don't. Are they going to be that much longer? I don't think so. I think they're, they're still going to be. Six, but yeah, that's not enough game. Because it's harder, it's going to take you much longer to get through those last yes, two levels. But then I'm going to be just beating my head, like going through levels one through four to then just work on level five. I just, I think it would, uh, I think I would be just like the people back in the day where I'd love this game for six weeks and then I'd be done with it. And if you're going to drop $1,000 on a cabinet and have this big 200 pound thing in your house, you want to get more than six weeks out of it. Well, uh, Oddly enough, you do make a good point there, Karen. I make great points occasionally. No, no. I must be drunk. <laughs> you really don't. Uh, as far as, as high scores go, though, you and I did make I told you, 32,820. <laughs> yes. The, the world record is held by... Me. Not you. Oh, it's held by not me. <laughs> I know that guy. By not, by not, not, not me has a lot of, a lot of high scores. Not me is pretty much the world record holder in everything. <laughs> right. uh, Stan, oh boy, Sizapansky. Uh, I I hope I got that right. S S Z C Z E P A N S K I holds the, the official world record uh, at one hundred eighty-seven thousand eight hundred eighty points. I was so close. How do you get a score that big if there's only six levels? It's a time thing. He must be able to whip through them. So, because you get a bonus, like the more time you have left, the more bonus you get as well. So, I think it's about he can probably do the whole game in two minutes. <laughs> and yeah, I was reading, I was watching some of the playthroughs on on YouTube of people who have played this from beginning to end. And some people, I, I think I saw like four minutes or something insane See, like that. That's so, what I mean. It's I think you'd get that good. I would totally get that good. Oh, of and course. Then you I'd would. be bored of the cabinet. <laughs> so, yeah, it's three minutes, 20 seconds, and I'm done. $800 for that. I'm Stan the Scissor Pants. Scissor pants. There you go. <laughs> Stan, I apologize for what I just said. <laughs> See, that's just mean. If he starts getting called that because of our show, oh, I'm no, going to feel very bad. I'm calling you that. Oh, I'm, you know what? I'm okay with that. You're scissor pants. And, I like uh, it. So, scissor pants, what, uh, what game are we playing next week? I can tell you what it sounds like. Punk. What is it? <laughs> okay. <laughs> And I guess that brings us to the end of another No Quarter podcast. It does. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to No Quarter, the classic arcade podcast. Feedback can be sent by email to noquarter at monsterfeet.com, or you can find us on Facebook as No Quarter Podcast, and on Twitter, we are at No Quarter Show. You can also find us on both the Throwback Network and the Real Retro Junkies Network. All of these links, plus the show notes, are available at monsterfeet.com, and like all Monster Feet podcasts, the original material in this episode has been released to the public domain. Did I bust your balls enough? You did good. Excellent. (laughs) Jeff will be happy. He will be happy, yes.